In a moment, we'll be turning to 1 Corinthians 6, but before we do that, may the Lord's blessing be upon us. As we look at the word of the Lord, we seek God's illumination in a moment of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that for Jesus' sake, your word may be of of a blessing to us. The word is infallible and errant. The word is without mistakes. The word is firm footing for our lives. We're glad for your gospel. We're glad glad for what your word tells us about ourselves, about you, and about where things are heading, where things have been, and where things are. We pray your spirit may be at work in us now, too, so that we might receive from your word its counsel in a faithful, clear, and relevant way that the exalted God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, along with Christ and your spirit, may predominate as uh, and for us, Lord, whether we're whether it's someone presenting your word or whether it is all of us in response to your word, that we would exalt you the more uh, in a humble and in a contrite sort of way. We pray, Lord, that you'd accept our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking then at First Corinthians six verses one through eleven tonight. We uh, last week already resumed our look at the scriptures in 1 Corinthians, and we're at verse 1 of chapter 6, and we read through the verse 11, 1 Corinthians right after Romans there, in the New Testament we pick up at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 6. Here's what God's Word says to us there. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But yourselves, uh, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We do thank the Lord for this portion of his word tonight. 
read publicly and as it's ministered to us this evening. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ to say that we live in a lawsuit-happy world would be an understatement. I think I've probably said that here before. I, I, I still see it whenever I, I travel back to see some of the kids and grandchildren in Illinois and you start getting close to Chicago and billboards are everywhere and you know, there are some of them that are about fireworks and how you can buy them at some crazy store somewhere. But, but there's a lot of billboards that you'll find if you come into Chicago that are advertising lawyers because lawsuits are big business. I suppose they're big business everywhere, but they certainly are there. And you know, where, where, where the lawsuits all legitimate would be one thing, but the ways in which people seek cash and at the expense of others in ways that don't fit the crime can sometimes just be astounding and remarkable. Uh, you can find all kinds of cases of lawsuit abuse you look even half-heartedly. I've seen one example of a couple that was living in Washington, D.C., and they found out that uh, as they were living there, they found out about how this could be. They were in the dry cleaning business, and one day they lost the customer's pants. And eventually, over time, they offered to this uh, individual uh, $12,000 and his pants. But unfortunately, the plaintiff sued the couple for $54 million. Now, the initial case was won by the dry cleaning company, but the man appealed it further down the line. I never heard about how it turned out, but you can just imagine the amount of time and money and business that had been lost by this couple, and not to mention the, the stress that would have come upon their lives over these ridiculous claims made by somebody who lost their pants. Um, such frivolity is, is, uh, is the reason for oftentimes lost jobs, lost enterprise. Uh, I'd heard even that, this was a number of years ago, but there was in one particular state, there was a Harris poll that was taken, and, and uh, doctors in this particular state um, it, it had mentioned that 75.9% of these doctors said that litigation fears had caused them uh, to, uh, uh, I, I'm, excuse me, I got this wrong, it was 35% of the doctors uh, had said that in this one particular state that they, they had left that particular state because of the, uh, the medical liability climate in that particular state. You know, we, we, we live in a world of, that loves to carry out lawsuits, and maybe you've been involved in one. And if you have, if you've had anything like that happen to you at all, uh, you know how stressful that can become. Uh, you know how difficult that that can make things, how distracting those sort of things can happen when they happen to you. Well, we live in a world where, and we've mentioned that before, of course, that people's mindset is, I want what's coming to me and then some. Uh, how we have to be thankful in the church of Jesus Christ that that wasn't the attitude of Jesus Christ, right? Because if Jesus Christ had what was coming to him from the start, he never would have gone to the cross, in essence. He was perfect. 
He deserved anything but that. And as we in turn, as those who trust in him, uh, if we really wanted to consider what we had coming to us, well, what we would have had coming to us is a life without hope at an eternity of condemnation. Again, it goes back to what Psalm 103 says to us, that God doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. Or as Psalm 130 would say to us, if you were to keep a record of sins, who would stand? If we had what was coming to us, we wouldn't like it so much. Because we're called to be reflections, though, of that Lord Jesus Christ and live so that we distinguish ourselves from a, a lawsuit-happy, litigation-happy society. You know, we're wise to heed the apostolic calling here in 1 Corinthians 6 to use wisdom in the disputes that we have with one another in the church of Christ. There are situations that, uh, that we need to avoid, matters that we need to promote, and circumstances that we need to remember if we look at this passage so that our membership in Christ's Holy Church will ring true before the world and bring honor to the Christ who gave up his rights for his people. So we want to look at all, first of all, at what Paul wants us to avoid. We look at wisdom and disputes among members. What to avoid, what to promote, what to remember. First of all, what is it that Paul wants us to avoid. If we go to law with believers, we may think we're doing ourselves a favor by standing for our rights. But what's really happening is that we are helping to sully the name of the church and discredit the Christ who gave up his rights. Paul's not saying here in 1 Corinthians 6 that there are not times when we need to go to court. But he says, don't do so with believers, he says. And, and why is that? Why not? Supposedly the peace of God in Jesus Christ has made a difference in one's life. And within the church. That you're a, a different person. I mean, the passage ends with the, that mentality, which is something we're getting, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but there is that part that we need to remember, that you were once like this, and now you're like this. You're a different person. And being a different person is, in part, being content in Christ. You come to understand the wisdom of settling your dispute out of court, or as the passage tells us, at least, or at least the wisdom in the church to help you settle it. If you look at the Old Testament, the legal system was erected to take care of disputes. But then, that was always in the context of the holy people of God. You didn't have to go to an authority outside of the church because the church and nation then were identical in essence. At least they overlapped, right? There was that theocracy that was taking place at that time. But that's not the situation in the church in the New Testament. The church is found in various nations. But as the holy nation of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, we should still be able to find somebody in the church to help us reconcile. Paul's concerned about the church's witness to the world here. When you take your case to the courts of the state, it is before the world that your disputes 
or discussed. This simply doesn't paint a good picture of what the Church of Jesus Christ is. It's not like you're trying to cover up, but, but when you hang out your dirty laundry before the world for everyone to see, that doesn't speak well about the Church. And the world loves that. The world loves to hear that the church isn't any different than the world. Because then they have more of an excuse not to join the church. Why do I need to join the church when the church isn't any different than the world? I just stay in the world. If the church isn't going to make a difference in my life, or if Christ isn't going to make a difference in my life, then why should I be a part of it, or why should I be a part of him? Whether it comes to litigations or, or any kind of behavior, the church has to be so careful about its moral testimony. What, what we're doing is has its impact, has its influence. Sometimes we may not think about the kind of influence that we have in the world around us. You know, just because we're not famous, just because we're not in the papers, just because nobody mentions us in a blog or something of that sort, doesn't mean we don't have an influence. Doesn't mean the church doesn't have an influence. We have to be sensitive to that. Another way to look at this problem as to what is to be avoided is what Paul says about the difference between the church and the world. He says there's going to come a day in our passage here, in the church of Jesus Christ, where we will judge angels, he says. Let alone people in the world who don't recognize the saving work of Jesus Christ. So why then are you using these as the state courts to solve a problem between believers that the church and its wisdom should be able to settle itself? There should be sufficient wisdom in the church without having to resort to the world. Paul's spirit is so different than the spirit of the world. And that's why he's grieved here when he sees a worldly spirit in the church. He's been seeing that already as, as we've been seeing ourselves. We've been looking at this back. But his alarm goes beyond taking the matter before the world. He's upset that there are even those who act much like the person who sues the dry cleaners for $54 million. They're not looking out for their fellow man. They're not looking out for their fellow believer even. They're just trying to see what they can get away with. They're just trying to see how much they can suck somebody dry, even if it means using fraudulent ways to do it. He says, you know... Uh, you know, why not be rather be defrauded, but, but your own, you yourselves wrong and defend, defraud, even your own brother. That's what was going on here. You know, it's one thing to have a dispute. It's another thing to set up an illegitimate one. The problem these people at Corinth were having was that they divorced morality from religion. You know, it was as if religion was just about, you know, worship, but had nothing to do with how one treated anybody else. And we'll talk more about that in a moment, but, but certainly Paul wants to make the point that if you're going to have a dispute, at least be honest about it, and don't be like the world. But Paul goes farther when it comes to avoidance. He says, if you really want to, to know what I think when it comes to how you can be different than the world, then he says, drop your litigation altogether. Because in your pursuit of litigation, the honor of the Savior and the church is going to come into question, and he says, no litigation's worth that. 
no lawsuits worth it. You know, we do indeed live in a world where possessing one's right is more important than loving one's neighbor. Getting what's coming to me is more important than giving honor and mercy and respect to another. Looking out for the neighbor's good is replaced with this egocentric pursuit of litigating jackpots. We've got women's rights, animal rights, victims' rights, and the never-ending quest for personal justice where, where people say that it's, it's really not about the money. It's not about the money, when most times it is. And people are treated like criminals who wantonly and, and things like in some back corner are rubbing their hands together maliciously and, and have this malice of forethought and they're seeking the destruction of another when what's happened was accidental or was negligent, but certainly not premeditated. Baseball companies are, are sued because someone was physically impaired by a line drive hit with an aluminum bat, as if the bat company schemed the whole point. Let's make bats so that we can kill people. It was an accident. We're going to get what's coming to us. I mean, it's all around us. You look at all the products that you have in your house. Or how many times you've got to sign off on something. And you think, why do I have to sign all this stuff? It's because if you don't, somebody's going to come back and try to make something of it. Somebody's going to try to make some kind of litigation. We can't trust anybody. And yet Paul says, why not rather be wrong? Now there's a concept for you. Why not be cheated? Why not be defrauded? Now in the world would say, you, you've got to be kidding. But the church of Jesus Christ isn't kidding. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? There may be times you need to go to court with unbelief, to be sure, but Paul wasn't afraid to exercise his rights that way himself. Seeking your rights isn't always wrong. But you can tell that Paul is remembering Christ here. And he wants the Church of Jesus Christ to, to avoid a black eye that will somehow, in that way, sully the name of Christ and put a black eye on face of the church as well. So there's kind of that negative side about what to avoid, but then there's also what Paul talks about when it comes to what to promote. He wants to promote an attitude that says, there are indeed times when it is not all about me. There are times when the world has to see from the church that we operate differently. Let's promote that. We want to make sure that we don't tarnish the name of Christ and His church in our pursuit of what we believe we have coming to us. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that Christ did for His church? What is it that Christ did for me? Because who was cheated like Christ was cheated? Who suffered injustice like Christ suffered injustice? Do we remember? 
Yet for the sake of the church and for the sake of His Father's glory, He endured the cross and He gave up His rights because He knew what His calling was. And He promoted it. Love God, love neighbor. It would be what Paul would say later in his chapter in love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It isn't easily anger. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Isn't that how Christ was? The church member then, connected to the body, connected to its head, even Jesus Christ, as a reflection of Christ, ponders the worldly way of sucking people dry, and being fraudulent and swindling of people and destroying homes and lives and jobs and reputations and enterprise and productivity and says, is that what I want to do to the world? More importantly still, is that what I want to do to my fellow believers? Now his ultimate goal is reconciliation overall, not vindication. Obviously, if there's offense, we need to pursue the winning of the brother in Matthew, in accordance with Matthew 18. Disputes are going to happen on this side of glory in the church of Jesus Christ. It's just that they need to be settled God's way and not the world's way. Because otherwise, as the apostle says, we've lost already for the dishonor of the church God, and even ourselves. Well, finally, we were mentioned, we hear about what it is that we need to remember here. And we, we hear some of that already, I realize. But we mentioned that it appears that religion and immorality were juxtaposed in the churches of Corinth. You, you do your, your holy things in the church, but then you live like you want in the world. Paul reminds the church of how dangerous it is to look at the Christian life like that. You notice all the different vices that he mentions here. Because he, 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 he ties this all in. Right? He says, you know, you, you've defeated your own purposes. You defeated yourself already when you're trying to do things the worldly way. Or don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You notice all the different vices. There is the dishonoring of marriage by way of fornication, premarital sin, extramarital sin, adultery, homosexuality, there's drunkenness, a vicious tongue, and thievery of, of various kinds that are mentioned here. Now these aren't the unpardonable sins. Again, because if God kept the record of sins, who, who would stand? But, you know, we're not justified by our works. But people who claim to be Christians, this is Paul's point here, and delight and they persist in these lifestyles are, are fooling themselves if they think they're heirs of glory. Now, there's still hope for those if they repent of their sins. That's partly why Paul's writing like theirs. 
like he is. There's hope for all these sins and more. Paul makes that clear to us as he finishes the passage. That's what some of you were. God did something to you by grace, Paul says, that only he could do in Christ. Only he could change you like this. He washed you. He consecrated you for his service. He made you right in the power and work of Christ by the application of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity's mentioned here. And Paul is confident that even though there are people in Corinth whose attitude is, let's stick it to the other guy, particularly in the church, he's confident by his admonition that, that things will correct themselves, that things will change with these people. He's confident that they'll remember. They'll remember that they were transformed from that former way of life to a new way of life. Not to the spirit of a lawsuit happy world. Not a life typified by immorality. But a life of purity by the cleansing work of God in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. The cleansing work of a divine, sovereign, gracious power. Person. That transformation is to be evident, as Paul is telling us here, in our lives as well, when we have known, as we remember, what God has done for us. For what He has done for us is not just wash away our sin, not just make us right with God, but He consecrated us for His service in all things. That consecration will typify the child of God in litigation and in all matters of morality. The child of God in Christ doesn't become the heir of, of worthless immorality and its lust. He becomes the heir of God's eternal kingdom. Purified by divine grace, delighting in honoring Him and his neighbor. Not seeking what he can soak from him. And, and that, that delight in honoring God and honoring one's neighbor needs to be enough to content us when we know ourselves as God's children in Christ. That should be enough for us. Not what we get from others, but what we can give to them. Because we've already been given so much already in Jesus. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for a person. That's what the apostle is trying to get at here. May that be what Jesus is doing for us. As those who are called to be known as children of God in Christ living a different world, a uh, different life in a world that's all about getting and not about giving. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray, shall we? <laughs> Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the wisdom of 
the Apostle who speaks in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would gain from it, be reminded of what we've gained when we have known the transforming work of Jesus Christ in our lives. We would pray, Father, that what would be desirous, Father, is not simply and crassly and crudely and primitively just trying to grab what we can. But to realize what we need to do is avoid giving the name of Jesus Christ and his body a black eye. We ought to be more interested, Lord, in, in promoting the neighbor's good rather than promoting our own. And that what we need to remember so that we would carry on in the ways to which you've called us is to remember what you have done for us. Remember what Christ has done for us. Remember what Christ was like himself. Because who suffered like he did? Who was wrong like he was? And yet, what greater gain have we had than what we gained because of his approach to life? and our life. We pray, Lord, that the gospel would make a difference in all parts of our lives. We remember what you have done for us, or as we profess what you have done for us. And we might live in a changed way because of what you've already given us, so that instead of wanting to figure out how it is that we can get, spend more time thinking about what we can give. And so be a light to a world that looks at things just the opposite way. We pray that you'd hear us in Christ's precious name. Amen. 485 is our...